Welcome to the Faith Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. We believe today's message will empower you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Here's today's message. Exodus chapter 3, starting with verse 1. When part two of our I Believe series, where we're teaching why we believe what we believe, is an apologetic series to remind you of the text scripture from last week, 1 Peter 3.15, said, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is with you, with meekness and fear. Of course, that means to be prepared to give a defense with gentleness and respect. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to download the message on the podcast or get it from the website, fccga.com, and listen to it. They're both free. So Exodus chapter 3. Let's read what we just watched dramatically presented. Verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, while the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off your shoes from off your feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Underline this phrase, and I am come down to deliver them. Verse 8, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Underline that phrase. See, God has a method of operation. He'll come down to bring you up. Out of the land unto a good land and large unto a land flown with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have seen the oppression with the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a token unto you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shall you say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said, moreover to Moses, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So let's break that down. First, remember, it will be important later, that he came down to take them up. He revealed to himself as I am. When you see that phrase, Lord God, in the Hebrew, it is Jehovah Elohim. Jehovah Elohim. Go to chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. 
So he revealed himself as I am and as Jehovah Elohim. Chapter 6, starting with verse 2, and God spake unto Moses and said, I am the Lord, or I am Jehovah, as it says in the Hebrew. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, or El Shaddai. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known unto them. The name Jehovah has a lot of mystery around it because it's so holy, the Jews stopped saying it. So they would refer, when they would read the Torah or read the writings, they would say Hashem, which in the Hebrew means the name. So instead of saying his name, they would just say the name. And so that went down for generations to a point where people forgot how to actually say his name. So that's why you have some people say Jehovah and others say Yahweh. But one of the things about the Hebrew alphabet at that time, there was no vowels. So every estimation to say his name is a guess. The closest you can get to it is say yud hey vav hey, yud hey vav hey, which translates as Yahweh or Jehovah. One of the things that God did, he said in chapter 6, they did not know me by my name Jehovah. What does that mean? Does it mean that Abraham and the patriarchs did not know the name of Jehovah? No, they knew that name. When God ministers his name or says his name, it's to reveal the attributes of his character and how he's going to manifest in that situation. So he said the overarching manifestation that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as was God Almighty or El Shaddai, which means the all-sufficient one who has all power to do all good. They knew me as the God who was more than enough or the all-powerful God. That's how they needed me to manifest in their life. But the children of Israel will need to know me by my name Jehovah. They'll need to know me by my name Yahweh. Now, what does that name mean? It means the self-existent one who manifests himself or the self-existent one who reveals himself. See, they don't just need to know that I'm all powerful. They need to see me in action. And so what the children of Israel will see in Egypt and through the wilderness into the promised land will be the God who manifests himself. That's what Jehovah Elohim means, the God who's a self-existent one who manifests and reveals himself. That is his name forever. Now let's take it another direction. The name Jehovah broken down to its most basic definition is he is. Broken down to its most basic definition is he is. So when you see Jehovah Jireh, he is provider. Jehovah Rapha, he is healer. Jehovah Shalom, he is peace. Jehovah Rohi, he is our shepherd. But how many of you ever taken a foreign language? And how many of you remember those beloved conjugation charts? Oh, I'll see everyone that's had a flashback right there. Now, if you remember on the chart on the left side, there's the I, there's the you, and then there's he, she, or it, right? For the name Jehovah, it would be on the left bottom side, he is. But when God said, I am, that's the top version of that side. So when he said, I am, or he is, he's still saying, I am the self-existent one. Whatever you need is wrapped up in me. So that's how he identified himself. He says, if you have any question who I am, I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. I'm the self-existent one. I'll manifest myself to you. God's not playing hide or seek. 
He's not saying, maybe you can find me. No, he says, I'm going to find you, and I'm going to manifest myself to you. A lot of people, when they get saved, say, well, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. He wasn't lost. <laughs> he found you. See, the thing is, he went to where you were. You think, well, I just happened to turn onto the TV, or I just happened to come to church. I just happened to see it online. It didn't just happen. God coordinated it. See, we'll get into this in a couple weeks, but think about on the road to Emmaus, there were two disciples. They were going from Jerusalem. God told them, Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to appear in Galilee. Meet me there. They're going the opposite direction. So as these two disciples, one is named Cleopas, they're walking the opposite direction. They're talking about everything they've seen. Jesus crucified. Jesus scourged. Jesus died. As they're having this conversation, Jesus, freshly raised from the grave, walks up next to them and starts talking with them. You think Jesus has more important things to do. He just defeated hell. He's risen from the dead. He's presented his blood on the mercy seat. What is he doing walking with two people who are going the opposite direction? So he begins to talk to them. He says, hey, why are you so down? Why are you so sad? They says, are you the only one in Jerusalem who has, doesn't know what has happened this weekend? So they began to tell Jesus what happened to Jesus. <laughs> and as they began to talk about it, he begins to say, well, don't you remember what the law and the prophets said? And he begins to teach them what the word said about himself. So as they're walking, it's a seven-mile journey. As they are walking, they get close to where they live, and Jesus acted like he was going to go beyond them, and they begged him that he would stay. So he came into their house, and their eyes were open as he blessed the meal. Some people believe because they recognize the blessing, or some people believe when he took the bread, they could see the nails and print in his hands. And then he disappeared from their sight. And they ran back and said, he is alive. He did appear to Peter. He did appear to the women. But one of the things I want you to remember from that story, they were going the wrong way. Yet Jesus in his mercy, Jesus in his compassion, Jesus in his love, went to where they were to get them to come back to where they're supposed to be. We've all had that experience where we were going the wrong way. We weren't doing what we were supposed to do, yet God came to where we were and helped us turn the situation around. You may not be where you want to be today, but thank God you're not where you used to be. Because although they were in the wrong place, they now had a journey back to Jerusalem. You may be on your journey back, but you're not walking alone. For he is the self-existent one who manifests himself. So John chapter 8, he is the great I am. He is Jehovah. John chapter 8. You may be in here and thinking about all the bad things you've done and how far are you away from God. But God brought you into this house today. He didn't run from you. He didn't turn his back on you. His arms are open wide, just waiting for you to turn today. John 8. Look at verse 54. 
They're questioning Jesus. Jesus answered and said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say unto you, I know him not, I shall be a liar like you are. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said unto him, you are not 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Abraham lived and died 1,800 years ago. You aren't even 50. How did you see Abraham? Notice what it says. Verily, verily, or I tell you the truth, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice he just said, I always existed. I was there. He took a right to their theology. I am. What is he doing? Identifying himself with the great I am. And when he did that, what do they want to do? They try to kill him. When deal with three different claims Jesus made about himself. Number one, he said, I am. The first claim of Jesus we're going to deal with today is he said, I am. So when Jesus said, I am, he was identifying himself with the great I am. We see different I am's of Jesus in scripture, especially the book of John. John 6, 35 says, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7 says, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 15, 1 says, I am the vine. But John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. People today say, well, Jesus would have been open-minded. He would have said, all roads lead to him. No, you're pretty closed-minded if you call yourself the way, the truth, and the life. This is the claim he made about himself. Because after he said, I am the way, the truth, and life, he says, no man comes to the Father God but by me. These are claims Jesus made about himself. Go to John 18. John 18, verse 5. This is when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18, verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto him, I am. Notice he's italicized, which means it was added by the translators for the sake of clarity. But if it's added by the translators, it can be taken out by you. So they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And then as soon as he said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. So when he identified, he just came out of prayer. I am. Am all the soldiers fell down, hit by the power of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a soldier and I came to arrest somebody, they said two words and it knocked me down, I'm done for the day. <laughs> he identified himself and the power of God went into action. Go to John 10, 36. So he identified himself as I am. He identified himself with the Father God. We'll get into it either today or later on 
in this series about the Trinity, the three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. They're separate persons, yet they are one God. They are all God, equally God. John 10, verse 36. Jesus confronted some of his accusers again. Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blaspheme, because I said I am the Son of God. One of the claims that Jesus made about himself, he says, I am the Son of God. Some people say, well, Jesus never claimed that. Yes, he did. Go to back a few chapters, John chapter 9. The reason we're going through these things is to give you an answer or a defense for why you believe what you believe. We're not giving you this information so you can get into a fight or start a debate online. We're giving you this information so if anyone asks you why you believe what you believe, you have an answer. And then you set up the opportunity for the Holy Ghost to be the Holy Ghost and deal with their hearts. One of the things we'll get to in this series is talk about how to give this information, then give your testimony and bring someone to Jesus. That's probably the capstone for the series. But John chapter 9, verse 35. So this is a man that Jesus healed. He was born blind, but his eyes were opened. The Jewish leaders kicked him out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, notice Jesus went looking for him. He said unto him, Do you believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. In other words, that's me. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So Jesus claimed he is I am, identified himself as the great I am in the book of Exodus. But he also claimed I am the Son of God. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Note this vision the prophet Daniel had in verse 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. If you would like my notes for the series, it's for free on the Bible app. You just have to download and hit save. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So the title Son of Man is a messianic title. And if you say you are the Son of Man, that means everybody will bow down before you. If you say you are the Son of Man, that means God the Father has decreed that everyone bows to you. So go back to the Gospels, but go to Matthew chapter 16 this time. So Jesus said, I am. He said, I am the Son of God. But notice what he says in Matthew 16, 13. Because this is something he says often in the Gospels. Matthew 16, 13. 
when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Here in this scripture and in multiple scriptures, Jesus says, I'm the son of man or the son of man. And he, refrain, for, and he talks about himself in third person as the son of man. So Jesus is identifying with the prophecy of Daniel, which was written 600 years, 700 years before. And it says, you know that person that Daniel saw in a vision that everybody bowed before? That's me. The third claim of Jesus is, I am the son of man. So he said, I am the son of God, I am the son of man, and I am. Notice how this conversation goes. They said, some say you are John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others says Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the current thinking about Jesus of that day is that he's some dead prophet that was risen from the grave. He said unto them, for whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter, which is, means small rock. And upon this rock, that word rock in the Greek means large, a megas rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not based on Peter. It is built on the foundation of the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what all the church sits on. He is the Son of God. So go to Isaiah 48. Because Jesus made these claims about himself, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Son of God, and that he is I Am. So either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's a Lord. Because anybody can say anything about themselves. Anybody can lie. But can what you say come to pass? People can be crazy and say things about themselves that are not true. But when's the last crazy person you see raise people from the dead? When's the last crazy person say, go up, pick, take up your stuff, and walk home? He said over and over in the Gospels, I'm going to die, but on the third day, I'm going to get up. Pay attention. They're going to kill me. They're going to beat me. It's going to be horrible. But on the third day, I'm going to get back up again. Pay attention. I'm going to be in the ground three days, three nights, the sign of Jonah the prophet. But I'm coming back. But none of the disciples believed him. But he said it over and over and over again. And Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. And I'm bad enough to pick it back up again. Jesus said what he was going to do. Then he did it and got back up. So when you deal with the claims of Jesus, you have to say he's either one of those three. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's a Lord. We dealt with last week how this material was not written in 325 in the Nicaea Council or any time after that. We tracked it back and proven to the manuscripts how it's written, the latest part of the Bible written by 100 A.D. And the earliest copy we have on record is 125 A.D. 
That has greater accuracy than any other document of antiquity. It was more copied than any document of ancient times. We used the example last week about the Iliad, Homer's writing from the B.C. time, that only 643 copies remain, and the closest full copy of it was in 800 A.D. Yet when you were taught Iliad in school, no one said we need to doubt what Homer actually said. We don't know if this is what he wrote because the full copy we had is for thousands of years later. They just said, Homer wrote this, let's read it. But we have more proof of what the Bible says and the claims Jesus made about himself. So Isaiah 48, you have to know these things, not just your favorite scripture. Isaiah 48, verse 3. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them and did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Look at verse 5. I have even from the beginning declared it unto you before it came to pass. I showed it to you, lest you should say my idol has done this, or my graven image or my molten image has commanded them. So notice one of the things God does to prove that he is the real God. He says, I'm going to tell you the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what happens. I'm going to tell you things to come. Or in other words, he is going to prophesy the future. And one of the signs that he is God is that it comes to pass. So we talked about eight different evidences for the integrity of the word of God last week, but I'm going to add one more for this week, prophecy. Ninth evidence for the integrity of the word of God is prophecy and its fulfillment. I'm not sure if I have time in this series, but if you study the book of Daniel, which we said is written about somewhere around B.C. 700, if not a little bit before, it talked about the rise of Alexander the Great hundreds of years before he was born. To the point, if you study one historian, Josephus, which many secular historians believe what he says, but they get nervous when they come to this passage of his writings because they said that when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem, that he was going to lay siege to it. But the priest came out in the royal garb. And Alexander the Great came and met them personally. Because he told them, I had a dream on the battlefield that somebody was going to come out to me in this garment. So he came in and worshipped with them. And they showed him the book of Daniel. And he believed that he was the conqueror prophesied about. And he sacrificed to God. That's what the secular historian said. Prophecy is fulfilled over and over and over again in Scripture. And there are several prophecies about Jesus being the Messiah. I'm going to read you this quote from Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Joss McDowell. And it says, the following probabilities are taken from Peter Stoner in Science Speaks to show that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. So you can't say Jesus fulfilled these prophecies by accident or by coincidence. One of the things we're doing as a church is we're reading through the book of Matthew this month. Pay attention to every time it says in Matthew that it is written or this was done in order to fulfill the scripture. Stoner says, by using modern science of probability in the reference to just eight of the prophecies, we find that chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies is one, to the, one in ten to the 17th power. 
that would be one and one quintillion. That's 18 zeros. In order to help us comprehend the staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to present time, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom. If he used 48 messianic prophecies, the chance of it being fulfilled in one person is one in 10 to the 157th power. In other words, man can't do it. Man's not that smart. But as we covered last week, this wasn't written under the will of man. But the inspiration of God as men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost. So people make an accusation after that. But filled prophecy about Jesus was deliberate. So Jesus deliberately did these things so that he could appear to be the Messiah. Here's a nice, calm rebuttal. There are certain prophecies that are beyond human control. Like, number one, the circumstance of his birth. Number two, the place of his birth. Number three, his betrayal. Number four, people's reactions to him. Number five, his piercing. Number six, his manner of death. And number seven, his burial. He couldn't make all those things happen. But God, before time, told him what's going to happen. So stay in Isaiah. We'll go to chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies. Not by accidents, not by coincidence, but because he is who he said he is. Isaiah 7, 14, let's look at one of these messianic prophecies. It's one people like to call into question, but it's important. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. One of the messianic prophecies is the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Go to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Notice what God says in the very beginning when he's handing out judgment to the serpent. Genesis 3, verse 15. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All of us in here are old enough to know women do not have seed. So God is saying something different is going to happen. And there's somebody who's going to come outside of the normal process. He identifies it more in Isaiah says, behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, why is it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? Some people say, well, it really doesn't matter, but it actually does matter because it's, in, it's essential to your redemption. 
Jesus being born of a virgin is essential to your redemption. Now, the word redemption means to buy back or to have a change of owners. The word redemption means to buy back or to have a change of owners. Redemption views man as born into the slave market of sin due to Adam's original sin. Redemption views man as born into the slave market of sin due to Adam's original sin. Go to Genesis chapter 1, just a few pages back. Verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish or fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So God created you in his image. Your spirit is exactly like God. He made your bodies in his likeness. He created you in his image. Your spirit is just like God. He made your bodies in his likeness. Now, John 1 tells us this is all made through Jesus because all things were made by or through him. Now, go to Genesis 5. Why does this all matter? How does this connect to him being born of a virgin? How does it connect to the messianic prophecy? Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Why is that an issue? After Adam sinned, his likeness has changed. His image has changed. Although he still looks like the same man in the garden, now Satan is his master. When he sinned, he bowed down to the devil and took on the devil's nature. So although Adam was made after the image and likeness of God, Seth is after the image and likeness of Adam and now having the sin nature. While the likeness is similar, the image has changed. When Adam and Eve sinned, they walked into the slave market and shut the door and accepted Satan as their master. When Adam and Eve sinned, they walked into the slave market, shut the door, and took Satan as their master. Let me use this as an example. If you come and help me, Brother Horse, if you come help me, Minister Eisen, if you come and help me, Brother Mike, if you come help me. Yeah, come up here. Brother Dathan, you too. You guys line up shoulder to shoulder for me. Let's go down a little bit more. This is Adam, the first man, into the slave market after his sin. 
he had a son, but his son is born after the same image. That means he's in the slave market as well, right? Now, a slave makes nothing. The wage of a slave is zero, right? A slave cannot buy his own freedom. So let's say you have a slave who says, I'm going to work harder than anybody else. He still makes nothing. Or you have a slave who says, I'm going to do more good works than anybody else. I'm going to be nicer than anybody else. I'm going to give to more poor. I'm going to help more people. I'm going to do more good things. Yet that slave is still on the slave market of sin and can't get out. And it's passed down. That's why a man born after the system can't save you. Because they're all slaves. That's why Buddha can't save you because he's a slave. That's why Muhammad can't save you because he's a slave. They're all in the slave market of sin. But what if you could get a man in there who wasn't in the slave market? What if you could get a man who didn't inherit the slave nature of sin? What if you could interrupt that process and just somehow maybe get somebody conceived without that heritage passed down? That means it would have to be someone born of a virgin since the sin nature passed down through the Father. So God interrupts the process of the sin nature, causes a man to be born of a virgin who now can 100% represent you. He's now the hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man. So now he can live the perfect life, and now he can die the death that you were deserved to die, that you should have died. Now this man can take your place and pay your price legally. And what happens when he does that? When Jesus paid the price, the doors of the slave market were flung open. He won't force you out, but now you can walk out. Thank you, gentlemen. And how do you walk out the slave market? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that he died for you, that God raised him from the dead, and then you're out. You don't have to work to get out. All these other religions say, well, you have to do these good things and maybe you'll make it into heaven. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. And it's about your belief on what he did. That's why him being born of a virgin matters to your redemption. Now let's deal with another accusation. People are saying, they're spreading on YouTube, supposed philosophers, that Jesus is a copy of the Egyptian god Horus. So here's what some of these mystics and YouTube philosophers claim. They say that the story of Jesus and Horus are similar, making Jesus a plagiarism of the Egyptian religion. They claim that Horus was born of a virgin on December 25th, that he had an earthly father named Seb, which supposedly translates to Joseph, that he was baptized by Anup the baptizer, that he had 12 disciples, among other claims. If any of those were true, you might have a case. But, some say but. Nowhere in Egyptian mythology does it say that Horus was born of a virgin. I'm going to clean up the story a little bit because I see some younger ears in the audience. The story has two variations, that Horus was the son of the Egyptian god Osiris and goddess Isis. And one variation, Isis brought Osiris back to life and conceived Horus. In another version, Isis slept with the corpse of Osiris 
and conceived Horus. Either way, Isis was not a virgin. Seb, who they said is supposedly Joseph, according to Egyptian mythology, was not a man, but the god of the earth. The name Seb has no linguistic connection to the name of Joseph whatsoever. Anup the baptizer, he doesn't even exist. None of the original source texts from Egypt ever mention Anup the baptizer. According to Egyptian texts, Horus had four disciples, or many disciples, and never said he had 12. So just because you see it on YouTube doesn't mean you believe it. Now, what about Islam? So I'm going to quote to you from the Quran. I'm not going to say made up things about Islam. I'm going to their book. The 111th verse of chapter 17 of Surah Isira says, All praises and thanks be to Allah who has not begotten a son nor an offspring, who has no partner in his dominion, nor is he low to have a wali, a helper, protector, or supporter, and magnify him with all magnificence, Allahu Akbar, Allah is the most great. So what do they say? God has no sons. Next verse, the 157th verse of the chapter 4, Surat in Nisa, says, And for their saying, indeed we have killed the Messiah, Jesus the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumption. They did not kill him for certain. The Quran denies Jesus' claim that he is the son of God. It also denies that he died, which means he didn't have to raise from the dead. Why is that important? Go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. One of the things we're going to do this summer, we're going to do a course called Fisher of Men. And we're going to walk through all the major world religions and some major cults and teach you what they believe versus what the Bible teaches and how to win those people for Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. Why does this matter what they said about Jesus? It says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. Go to Romans 10 8. Remember we said the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God is what the church is built on. And John says, part of the process of you be born again is you acknowledging or you confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 10, verse 8. But what says it, the word is nigh thee, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If Jesus did not die, you are still dead in your sins. What the Quran says about Jesus strikes at the very heart of your belief and your assurance of your salvation. Islam and Christianity are not the same, nor do we believe the same things. Jesus is who he says he is. You have to believe what he says above what anyone else says and don't compromise because it's politically correct. We do not all serve the same God. We do not all believe the same things. There is one man who is our representation. There is one who came who's 100% God, 100% man, Christ Jesus. He is the one who's unique in all of history. No one can compare or get close to his uniqueness to his love or to his power.
Go to John chapter 1. Let's close this thing here. Is this helping anybody today? John chapter 1. See, I'm not mad at nobody. Other religions aren't my enemy. I love Muslims and Muslims love me. I'm not mad at nobody. I love them enough to tell them the truth. And you watch. We're going to have a lot of former Muslims join this church. Why? Because when I meet different ones, I just say, oh, you're just temporary. I don't say it out loud, but that's how I believe. What am I going to do? Share the love of Jesus with them. Live a light before them. And as the Holy Ghost opens the door, that's what we're talking about in a couple weeks, we're going to minister to them and see them born again. So don't be mad at nobody. Don't hate nobody. You have an answer for why you believe in you walk in love and watch the Holy Ghost do what the Holy Ghost does. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word made flesh. This whole book is about him. It's about his story, about his redemption, about getting us out of the slave market. So in summary, in Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of the broken down walls of human life. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the life's fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger of beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist crying, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. And Zechariah is the fountain opened up in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. And Malachi is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. I want to know, do you know him? In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the son of man, feeling what you feel. In John, he is the son of God. In Acts, he is the savior of the world. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he is the rock that followed Israel. In 2 Corinthians, he is the triumphant one given victory. In Galatians, he is your liberty, he sets you free. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is your joy. In Colossians, he is your completeness. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he is your hope. In 1 Timothy, he is your faith. In 2 Timothy, he is your stability. And Philemon, he is your benefactor. And Titus, he is truth. And Hebrews, he is your perfection. And James, he is the power behind your faith. And First Peter, he is your example. And Second Peter, he is your purity. And First John, he is your life. And Second John, he is your pattern. And Third John, he is your motivation. And Jude, he is the foundation of your faith. And Revelation, he is your coming king. Do you know him? That's who he is.
Jesus is who he says he is. It's your job to believe and receive. So stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Thank God for Jesus. Hallelujah for Jesus. Hallelujah. Every head bowed, every eye closed in prayer. No one moving or walking unless you've been assigned to do so. Keep your feet in the house of God. I hope you enjoyed today's message. We never want to close a broadcast without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if you've never asked him into your heart, you've never made him your Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me today and mean it from your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me, but on the third day, you raised him from the dead. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me now. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live this Christian life. If you prayed that prayer and meant it from your heart, we believe you've been born again. We ask that you email us at info at FCCGA.com. That's FCCGA.com to let us know about the decision you've made for Christ today. Have an amazing day.